This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Jagmeet Singh will launch his bid to become leader of the federal uh, New Democratic Party later today. Uh, this uh, race has been going on, obviously, uh, since Thomas Mulcair and, and, uh, announced or sort of decided to step aside. I guess that was decision was made for him. Uh, that being said, uh, this, uh, I guess, race has sort of been lost within uh, or in the shadows of uh, the conservative race, uh, leadership race. However, now that Kevin O'Leary's dropped out of that, I'd say they're both equally as boring. Uh, that being said, uh, apparently it's going to spice up just another notch when Jagmeet Singh, uh, of course, uh, announces his uh, his candidacy. Uh, a very popular candidate in Ontario and quite the fashion plate from what we understand. Mixed martial art artist. So, uh, you know, it's a, a different take and someone who's going to add some excitement, they say, to the NDP leadership race. To talk more about all of this, Peter Grape is with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, and with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to join us. As always, Peter, does this candidate generate interest in the NDP leadership? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> other, than, other than beyond you and me, Peter. Yeah, well, I mean, in the realm of political watchers, I guess it adds a bit of interest to the race, but uh, uh, I suspect some random tweet by Kanye will, you know, be eight times as big in terms of people's interest and attention. So why is this candidate generating some interest? Is it because he's that interesting a candidate, or is it because the uh, race itself isn't that exciting? Well, I think we're in the early stage of a race uh, for the leadership of the third party in Parliament. Uh, so I think at the best of times, it's not going to be a, a front, uh, you know, a front page news uh, kind of question. Uh, the candidates to date uh, have been quite credible, but none of them are, if you like, rock stars. None of them really have independent reputations outside of their status as parliamentarians. Uh, you know, which may be actually a good thing that parties <laughs> choose people who are you know, dedicated to the profession of politics rather than sort of fly-by-night artists like, uh, well, I guess we were talking about uh, Mr. O'Leary just a minute ago. Um, but, you know, having said that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the interest that's trying to build be built around uh, Jagmeet Singh is that I guess we haven't quite seen a politician quite like him uh, before uh, in the sense that we haven't had a lot of uh, uh, people of the Sikh religion running uh, in our politics and the ones that we have had uh, have not been nearly as kind of flash uh, in their sort of media presence as uh, Jagmeet Singh has been, who's been, you know, very visible, uh, you know, and in ways that are probably not typical for New Democrats in terms of, you know, driving a flash car, uh, dressing well, and so forth. <laughs> dressing well. Isn't that funny how that stands out? Uh, yeah, he's a fashion plate. So that's a big issue when you're in the NDP, I guess, is it? Well, I suspect in the NDP more than in other parties, although anywhere you're where you're a fashion plate, I guess people will find reason to find fault with that as, you know, being uh, style over substance. Uh, but I suspect particularly in the NDP, there's still a few more people who are uh, expecting their leaders to sort of live as monks, I guess, mm. <laughs> sort of away from any sort of material uh, wealth or, you know, aspect of, of fashion or style. But uh, you know, I suspect it plays both ways, even inside the NDP, where, I mean, in his, in his entourage, we know that a lot of people who were quite uh, involved in the Layton campaigns about 15 years ago, uh, when they were trying to get Jack Layton to run for the uh, leadership of the NDP, and probably likewise, they see in uh, Jagmeet Singh, someone who's going to make Canadians look twice at the NDP, uh, maybe looks a bit different than, you know, past leaders, certainly has a media presence and style. 
uh, that sets them apart and maybe uh, makes people uh, be more willing to consider uh, the NDP rather than seeing it as a sort of stale old party. Uh, is the substance there? Well, I think that's where it uh, remains to be seen. I mean, Mr. Singh has been a member of provincial parliament for six years now. Uh, there's not a long list of uh, issues where we could say he was, you know, front and center. I mean, certainly he's played an important role in bringing the question of carding to the fore in Ontario and to make that a big kind of question of uh, human rights uh, in our discussions. Probably uh, the push for the NDP to be pushing for some kind of anti-racism secretariat owed something to his presence, uh, you know, in pushing uh, Andrea Horvath and, you know, by extension, the, the Liberal government to... Uh, think about that. But beyond that, you know, it becomes a bit thinner to say, well, what exactly does uh, Mr. Singh stand for? And as he moves on to the national stage, you know, what's his vision of economic growth in Canada? What's his vision of Canada's foreign policy? Those kinds of questions are ones which we really have no clue uh, what he stands for at this stage. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, practicing Sikh uh, also wears a turban. How important is it for this segment of the population to be represented at this level? This, this would be a first if it was to happen. Well, I mean, Canadian politics uh, remains very white uh, in its presentation. I mean, obviously, we've seen change probably more at the provincial level than at the federal level, and more in uh, even in municipalities, like at a place like Toronto, a very white city council and leadership case, despite a very diverse population. So, I mean, at that level for Canadian politics, it's healthy to see, uh, in a sense, that... Uh, you know, a broader range of people, uh, you know, that all Canadians ultimately have the capacity to run for the top jobs. And so, you know, that is useful, presumably uh, for his campaign. That will be a selling point in trying to bring people uh, into the NDP tent who might not be there otherwise. Uh, but in the longer run, obviously, this kind of opening is going to take place across all the political parties. I guess what's more important is that it happens so that, again, that kind of promise of equality in Canada uh, can be realized. In the short term, I suspect it's going to be a challenge for his campaign because there will be arguments made that uh, uh, being a Sikh uh, is going to cost him votes, that Canadians ultimately, uh, there's enough, a big enough segment of Canadians who you know, maybe aren't necessarily openly racist but are uncomfortable, uh, you know, for instance, with a, a Sikh man being a leader of a political party that there would be a cost involved. So I think that will be part of his campaign, is making an explanation of why that shouldn't be a concern. Has the NDP had trouble connecting with ethnic minorities in the past? Uh, I'd say so. Uh, what, what, what's that issue? What, why is there that obstacle? Well, I think the way that the NDP is organized has really been around uh, the idea of being an ideological party and the idea that they had put, put forward something that was in the flavor of social democracy and that people who shared those values would line up behind it. And I think both the Liberals and the Conservatives recognize that politics isn't just about the ideas, it's also about the kinds of organizations that bring people to participate in politics, and they've been willing to work through a variety of different you know, community structures and forums to reach people and organize them into politics. I think the NDP has really just not been present. They haven't been, uh, you know, as much as they'd like to consider themselves an open party, uh, they felt uncomfortable doing organizing that isn't simply ideological, and as a result, uh, they failed to connect with many of these communities. I mean, I think the other thing is is that uh, you know where do newcomers to Canadians live? I mean, in many cases, they live in the suburbs, and in, you know, the suburbs have been places where the NDP has had very little success in the past 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, you know, not just among new Canadians, but just generally having a vision of how we could live differently as Canadians that resonates. 
outside of either uh, sort of the downtowns of Canadian communities or the sort of resource hinterland. That in-between of the suburbs has been a really difficult job for the NDP in Ontario. Bob Ray was able to capture them in the late 80s and then win his, his win in 1990, but since then uh, it's been completely desolate. Uh, obviously, Jack Layton, we know what he did and, and how he brought uh, popularity to this party, uh, moving them closer to the mainstream. Uh, can this candidate do this? Is this what they're looking for, or is this too flashy for the NDP, considering what we do know about Jagmeet Singh, uh, uh, mixed martial arts uh, uh, athlete as well, as you mentioned, known for uh, in various magazines for his dress, very fashionable kind of guy, not the typical you know, a ragged tie and in, in tweed jacket and with patches on the sleeves kind of NDP, or is he too much? No, I don't think he's too much. I mean, I think his challenges will be, uh, A, to be known outside of, uh, well, I mean, even inside Ontario. I mean, I think he's known to political watchers, but not to necessarily the average Ontarian, but to make himself known nationally, to show that he has some content on, you know, the bigger national issues. Uh, he's able to put forward a broader vision uh, of what he wants to do and, and note the steps that it would take to get there. Uh, and I think third, to deal with the question that will be, you know, can he win seats in rural Quebec? Can he win seats in places where people are uncomfortable, uh, you know, as what it represents to be a Sikh man as a leader of a political party? I think those will be his challenges more than the flashiness. Uh, I think his campaign is based on a bit of the gamble that, uh, you know, in the old days it was a labor movement that uh, chose who the NDP leader was in their conventions. Now, with the, you know, the, the NDP choosing based on one member, one vote, it's the media, in many ways, that determines a winner by giving a sense to the people who are voting about who's likely to connect with the Canadian population. So I think the Singh campaign is really based then around presenting, if you like, a even more Trudeau than Trudeau personality. Someone who, uh, how much does that play a factor in this, Peter, considering you know, how Trudeau changed the, the landscape last election? How does that factor into this? Well, I mean, there's the specific Trudeau factor, and the other is like how you do politics in, in the current moment uh, around uh, really presenting a series of appealing images of a candidate rather than doing uh, trying to get elected through policy. And I think many of the other candidates to date who are running for the NDP really have the idea that you go and you meet the members of the NDP and you sell them the ideas that they think they're going to believe in. Uh, I think Singh thinks that that's not how you do politics these days. I mean, much as Leighton didn't, uh, that instead you have to sell this appealing package where people invest kind of psychically in it and say, yeah, I want to be like that guy, or he has a vision for change and I you know, want to be part of his team. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's the, the sort of main driving thing. But clearly, uh, I mean, Singh, I think, uh, faced with Trudeau, you could say, might be more credible to say, well, actually, I want to deliver for the middle class because I know what it is to be middle class. You know, I wasn't I wasn't a silver mm. spooner like the prime minister. Good I, point. You know, I, I grew up in places like Windsor and St. John's, Newfoundland, and I live in Brampton, and I understand how people are living and what their dreams are. Uh, and in that way, I think uh, he might have an entree uh, if there's still a taste for change, if it's still a kind of uh, question of a change election next time. 
uh, he might more credibly uh, embody some of those values that Trudeau stood for last time. How uh, united is this party? I mean, this you know, obviously during con- you know times of convention and leadership races and such, it, it tends to fragment. But are, are they focused? It, it seems that the left uh, liberals will go in and pluck out everything they want uh, good from the NDP and then move on, while they continue to fight with mainstream versus traditional ideology. Uh, I, I guess that happens every leadership race. But but are they having a hard time to see, figuring out where they fit in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I don't think there's a, a lot of visible disunity yet in, in the campaigns. In some ways, the candidates have been too much on the same page. There hasn't been very clear debates uh, to date. Uh, but I think the bigger question will be uh, in terms of whether the hard core of NDP party uh, members uh, you know, choose to engage uh, with the mainstream and to say, yes, they want to continue with the Jack Layton project, of trying to uh, really put the Liberals out of business by becoming the umbrella party for progressive Canadians and uh, uh, sort of a large swath then uh, of the electorate, or whether uh, ultimately the party decides that, no, what Canada needs is a social democratic party, uh, which is going to be smaller. Uh, It's going to be probably more ideologically defined uh, around a number of issues, perhaps more strongly connected with questions of redistribution, uh, but then also a party which is going to be a small party that's going to be lucky to hold on to the 45 seats that it has at the moment. So I think that's going to be a, a significant decision uh, to be made. I don't know if there will be disunity uh, once that decision is made uh, inside the membership, but their capacity to reach a broader swath of Canadians, I think, will depend on, on which way they go. Peter Grabb has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The world suffered a massive cyber strike over the past uh, week. Computers being held hostage by ransomware where uh, culprits will demand money to provide users uh, functionality with their computers and systems. They basically just lock down all your stuff and say you want it back. You pay the money. Uh, David Hyde is with a security consultant, David Hyde and Associates, and with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Very good, Scott. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for taking the time to join us, as always. So where, what do we know about this? Do we know where it originated from? Yeah, it's not totally clear, Scott. Um, I know that uh, it, it appears to be pretty much the biggest online extortion attack that's ever been recorded in, in terms of this type of attack here. Um, you know, there's suggestions that it may have uh, been in Europe, that, that it uh, seems to have hit, hit most of, of the um, victims. Um, but it's also spread to essentially 150 countries altogether. And there's as many as 200,000 victims, Scott. So it's a very significant ransomware type attack. And it's a very, it's quite a scary type of attack. And we can get into the details here in a minute. But it really is a stark reminder to anyone who uses the internet, which is going to be most organizations and most of your listeners, Scott, that they do need to take some precautions to make sure that they can avoid this type of attack. You can never prevent everything, Scott, but you can sure make it much, much less likely that you'll be targeted with a few fairly straightforward steps. Uh, in the past, when we've heard of hacking, specifically involving the U.S. presidential election, all eyes were on Russia. It was government sort of espionage of some of some extent. Is that what this is here, or is this private criminal activity, independent criminal activity? You never know, Scott, if there's not, I'm going to call it a bad actor in the background, whether it's a government or some kind of a shadow-type organization or group. 
obviously this was some type of hacking entity that was able to um, you know plant this type of a of a of an attack or, or ransomware attack. Essentially, it looks like what it was, Scott, was some type of a worm attack, which means that, you know, normally when you have ransomware, your listeners will know that, let's say you receive an email, and the email might say, you know, hey, you haven't heard from you for, 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 for a while, you know, um, see, see the attached for what I'm doing recently, or click the link below, and you're going to, you know, you're going to want to see this kind of information. They're trying to entice you to click an attachment or a link, and when you click that, that's where the the malware or the ransomware attack is on that link, right? So it takes over your computer, encrypts your data, and a, and a pop-up comes up and says, if you don't pay me X number uh, in untraceable bitcoins, the online currency, <clears throat> we will destroy your information in seven days. And every day or a few days that you wait, the, the, the ransom goes up. So people, often people just pay it. The, the data is encrypted. You can't get to it. But the second kind of scarier way it can work, Scott, is when it's like a worm, which essentially means that the hackers find a vulnerability in a network. So, for example, this one here was a vulnerability in the Microsoft Windows platform where they you know, were able to identify a vulnerability and all they needed to do was get onto computers that, um, and it would spread, you know, like across a whole network, like a whole organization. That's why you saw in the in the UK the National Health Service, which is the national, um, you know, hospital and healthcare uh, network across the country. Many of those institutions got hit because they hadn't kept their the patches up on their Microsoft uh, servers. They've not been not not kind of kept current, not put the latest. Um, it fixes, if you will, in against that system, and that's where this this malware will attack that weak link. So this is the scarier version. It's called a worm or a worm-like attack, where it spreads across the network, and there's no human activity required. You haven't got to click a link, or you haven't got to do something. So this is the scarier version, and again, it comes down to a few simple things to try to prevent these things from occurring, Scott. What can we learn about the hackers from, as you mentioned, the type of attack that this is and the size of the attack that this is? Does that give us any clues as to where this might originate? I think it will, Scott. And this is going to kind of come down to um, you know, cyber security experts and cyber police, if you will, that you know, many large police departments and, and government law enforcement institutions have very, very specialized uh, cyber espionage groups, cyber uh, crime prevention and investigation arms, and they'll be looking at this right now. And they're going to try to discern, track it back as much as they can. It's, it's a very different type of criminal investigation, Scott, than it would be if it was in the physical realm. You're now looking back through computer networks. You're looking back through login um, uh, you know, issues, algorithms, um, the, 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 the various um, you know, DNS servers, IP addresses. There's a wide range of different factors that, you, that they need to come back through to try and get some type of an idea of where this may have originated, what kind of group may have been behind this, and ultimately to try and track it back to its source. But the danger here, Scott, is it appears to have been kind of headed off at the past to a degree um, by, a, by a, an individual in the UK, it seems, that was able to kind of do something to try to slow this down, a cybersecurity specialist. But uh, it, this is going to morph and evolve, Scott. This is the beginning, in my view, of a whole new world. This has been discussed for a long time by experts in the field to say, look, be careful what you wish for. 
we have very large networks, very convenient to share information, very convenient to do business and for pu- the public to do what they need to do online. But these things are vulnerable. These networks and systems and computer systems um, are very vulnerable if they're not properly detected. And this is what's happened here. And you can see from the scale of this, Scott, that it does, it does cause serious concerns, not just to individuals, but to, to organizations, to governments, to privacy, uh, to, to, to the economy in certain respects. Will they find out where this originated? Will they find out how this started? Who did this? I think it's debatable. I mean, I think the days of really being able to track these things back more accurately, Scott, are behind us. It's very, very challenging. Unless there's someone on the inside that decides to turn to the government side or that actually provides evidence, you know, in terms of just a cyber sleuthing um, arrangement in and of itself, it can be very, very difficult. And you see, there's so many different ways that these hackers can masquerade as something else. So, for example, we found out in, 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 in the last round with the Russian uh, activities in the U.S., no doubt the Russians were involved, Russian entities were involved in doing some uh, jiggery-pokery in terms of the U.S. elections and, and, and hacking of Clinton's people, etc. Um, but, you know, we also know that the Americans have the ability to masquerade as the Russians when it comes to hacking. So if it suits the American intelligence agencies, they would have the ability in certain circumstances to actually make it look as though it was Russian hackers, but it wasn't. So you need to be very careful in terms of just looking at the trail and automatically assuming that what you're seeing has all the hallmarks of a Russian attack or an Asian attack or, or, or European attack. It's not that simple, and it's very challenging, Scott, to really get to 100% on these investigations. Do the targets in any way help uh, investigators find the solution? For you know, the fact that there were users in Germany, uh, China, India, and the United States that had all fallen victim to this, does that somehow help in investigators in, in pointing to a direction? I don't know enough, Scott, or we don't know enough about all of the victims to discern that. I would think right now that the answer probably would be no. It looks to me as though this was an attempt by this hacking group to extort money. Um, And the way that they do that is the more victims they can get, the more broadly that this this kind of attack, uh, ransomware attack, can, can spread, the more money they're going to make. It's a numbers game. So in here, they found a way to take advantage of certain networks and certain computers that, that weren't up to date with their protection. So, I mean, for real fast example, Scott, think about the, 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 the kind of victims here. We have the National Health Service in the UK, hospitals, healthcare. We have auto manufacturing. We have tele, telecommunications, right? These are very operationally complex organizations. So there's a reason why they might not have their patches which is what Microsoft would issue and other uh, software manufacturers would issue to, to address known vulnerabilities or flaws. When Microsoft makes this software, Scott, like Windows, and it goes through various iterations, there's so many facets to it 
the, inevitably there's going to be a few flaws and vulnerabilities. And if a bad guy is able to exploit that, they could end up doing things like this ransomware attack. So Microsoft are constantly issuing what's called patches, which, which essentially um, you know, strengthens those flaws or fills any of those gaps that are in place. But the trouble is, very large, complex organizations with very critical computer systems, like hospitals, for example, like airlines, for example, for them to kind of take their systems down to put the patches on can be very, very challenging. So this is the reason why sometimes large, complex organizations are a little bit behind with patching. And if a cyber criminal group can take advantage of that window, this is why they can get, gain traction in very large organizations that have complex computer systems and operating environments, Scott. David Hyde is with a security consultant. Uh, David, is this organized crime then? Is that, how big is this? Could this be quite a, an organized operation? It, could this be quite simple? It really could be either one, Scott. I mean, we've seen before how one or two or a small group of hackers that have expertise in a few areas. I mean, it, it tends to be that as a, as a, as the, in, in, in the hacking world, you have expertise over one area. It may be malware. It may be defeating government networks. It may be the Internet or websites or DNS kind of server uh, attacks. These are the kind of things that they tend to specialize in. So this could be as simple as a very small group, as little as two or three people, who kind of came together, brought their skills, if you will, together, and, and were able to exploit this and send out um, these, you know, these essentially these, these infections, online infections, which then found victims where the patching wasn't in place. And once it gets into one of those com computers in a hospital, let's say it's not protected, it will infect and go along the whole network and all of those computers get locked down. All of the information on them gets locked down until people pay the ransom. So that's what happened here, Scott. And it looks to me as though it's more than likely a small size group. Is there organized crime behind it? Is there big money behind this or a state actor? We don't know yet. Uh, you talked about updates. What can the average person do to protect themselves here? Well, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to maintain absolute uh, up-to-date um, software updates from any software platform that you have. So if you're operating on a Windows system, or whether it be um, Apple system, you, you need to make sure that you are either signed up for the automatic updates where it automatically updates. If you're not comfortable doing that for whatever the reason, then you need to make sure that you have a system in place that notifies you anytime Microsoft issues a security update or a patch, and you must make sure that that gets put onto your computer. And the trouble is, Scott, that it, it, it gets, it's a little bit beyond most people's comprehension who don't really understand computers and networks and that, and they get intimidated by it and just think, well, if I just leave it alone, if I don't upload anything new, or if I don't, uh, you know, kind of keep up with the times, it's okay, because I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm not kind of taking in new information. I'm not, I'm not exposing myself. The trouble is, by staying behind the software updates, you are exposed to vulnerability. So you really need to keep those, those patches up. That's step one. And step two is never click a link 
never click an attachment that you, that you do not expect from somebody who has told you it's coming. And that's a tough one, Scott, because I've had emails that, that from people that I know or masquerading as a name from my address book that someone has hacked from somewhere else and said, oh, you know, this is a picture from my vacation. There's a picture there. And, and, and five years ago, I might have clicked on that picture because I wouldn't have known any better. You, you, you know, we can't be clicking on links. We can't be clicking on attachments in emails, in text messages, anything online, unless we're totally positive of the veracity of, of, of the origination of that. All right, uh, David, I cannot let you go. Uh, David Hyde with us, uh, of course, uh, David Hyde uh, and uh, David Hyde and Associates, uh, security consultants. I can't let you go without talking about Trump and the latest in regard with the FBI, uh, the firing of uh, James Comey. Uh, Trump actually uh, at one point tweeting that he'd better hope that there are no recordings of these meetings between Trump and Comey and such. Uh, at the end of it all, there certainly doesn't seem to be good relations between the White House and the FBI. How much of a detriment is this? How important is it for these two organizations to be on the same page? Well, it, obviously, Scott, it does. It certainly undermines um, confidence in both institutions. You know, depending upon your political stripe, you may think that the White House or President Trump, in this case, has got more on on his side in terms of the truth or or, or, or the kind of right path. If you think otherwise, you may think that the, the FBI. <clears throat> director, um, you know, uh, was, was, was treated poorly here. But I think in, e- in any event, it really puts a black eye on both organizations. The reality here, Scott, is that when, when Comey was saying things that, that President Trump liked, then Comey was a hero, right? Mm. As soon as the message changed and Comey started to do his job, which some would argue he's always done, and, and some would rightly say he's been a bit unconventional, He's done some things that, that, that could be objectionable, that maybe is outside of, of his mandate. And, and I think he was open to criticism to a certain degree. But I don't think you can criticize his approach to the Russian investigation. I think from what we've seen as a security professional anyway, I thought that he was fairly even-handed and he was kind of speaking the truth to, to, to power to a degree. What he was finding, what he was seeing, he wasn't overstating it or understating it. I don't think that Trump had the assurances from Comey that he wanted. I don't think that Trump was confident that he'd be able to have any degree of message control over that FBI director. And I think that the time came when Trump just decided for whatever, you know, that reason and other reasons to, to, to cut this guy loose. So, like, to answer your question, I, I, I do believe this is, a, this is a black eye on uh, really on democracy to a degree, Scott. I don't think that the President of the United States should be able to fire the chief law enforcement officer who is investigating that entity, the White House, or, or the connectivity between campaign members of, that, of the President um, and a potential criminal activity from the election. I think that's problematic, and it certainly is disquieting to, to kind of democratic principles in the U.S. Uh, one last question. Uh, with Comey out of the way, and some would say Trump in the way, uh, are you confident the FBI can continue this investigation? Uh, does there need to be like a special prosecutor and someone uh, different coming in to head this up now? Well, I think any even-minded person that, although you, although you may be partisan, you may you may also be objective of, uh, and, and free of thought. I think having an independent prosecutor here, special prosecutor, is going to give us the truth of the matter here. It's not going to be prejudicial to one side or another. So I support that, Scott, because the, the, the issue here, 
on the one hand, the FBI uh, frontline operatives are phenomenal. I've met a number of them in my years of working in the industry. They're some of the best people around. They're totally dedicated to what they do. So, so losing the director is not going to take them off the case. They're still going to continue to do it. But the question is, will a new director who may have a different allegiance and may not take the job the way Comey did, may be able to just suppress or or have an impact over the trajectory of the investigation in some way. And for that reason, I would be concerned that we are going to get impartial results here. And I really hope that in the coming weeks, there's an announcement or a push towards a special prosecutor that will be able to take all things at face value, weigh the evidence, and come out with an impartial, objective opinion. Because at the end of the day, that's what we need to have here, not a slanted view through a partisan lens. Uh, do you think there is anything here, or do you think it's just sloppy politics? Um, you know, I heard one pundit say, and I know you're security, not a political pundit here. I heard one uh, pundit say, uh, how can you look so guilty and not be? I, I mean, if he's not guilty of something, wh- why does he leave these doors open to us, you know, that one could assume guilt? No, that's a great question, Scott. And on the one hand, you could say, look, you know, Trump has long proved himself to be someone that defies conventional politics. And, and he's been able to say and do things that would have been suicide politically for any other political operative. And, you know, but he's been able to get away with this. So he's in a special category all of himself for a start. And he, he doesn't have the message control personally as to not put his foot in his mouth or not, or not you know, look guilty, even if he's not. But the reality here, Scott, if you ask me my honest opinion, just personal opinion, I do think that there was some, some, some kind of nefarious activity here. I do believe there may well have been a level of connectivity or collusion or cooperation or tacit approval of actions by Russian entities in terms of impacting the U.S. election. The question is, and I believe that history will prove that, Scott. But the question is, how high did it go? Who knew about it? And was there crimes committed by people that are currently in government? And that is the critical question that we're going to be looking at here in the coming weeks and months. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates, talking everything from cyber attack to Trump. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we've talked about this issue a couple of times. Toronto police have now expressed disappointment at being excluded. Uh, Now, this would be members within the organization, not the actual organization itself. Uh, Being excluded from this summer's uh, Gay Pride Parade, although police are invited to march as long as they don't wear their uniform. Uh, There are questions uh, now as to whether any of them will or not, because, of course, this was all instigated through Toronto police, encouraging their members to, um, to take part in all of this. To talk more about all of this, Sue Ann Levy is with us from your Toronto Sun. Cop extremely upset about Pride ban is the headline today, and she is with us now. Hello, Sue Ann. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So, uh, where are these two sides on this issue? Uh, I I understand there was a meeting with the mayor and such in regard to funding, and that police uh, and everybody allowed to just let it go this year in the hopes that next year things would be resolved. Where are the two sides now? Really far apart, Scott. Uh, Council is meeting on the 24th of May, and they are supposed to vote on whether to um, go ahead and fund Pride. It did get through the Mayor's Executive Committee. This is the 260000 annual grant that they get, 
and some counselors are trying to push withholding the grant this year uh, unless uh, police are allowed to march. So um, the mayor has come on the side of uh, pushing to continue with the grant. We happen to disagree at the Sun strongly uh, that there has to be a strong message sent. Um, and the other thing is that the cops I interviewed uh, who are in the story today aren't Toronto cops. One is formerly from Hamilton. Uh, the other is with the RCMP Milton Detachment. Both of them gay. Both of them came out in the last 10 years. Both of them marched in the parade last year. And so this is affecting forces all over the province, not just Toronto. Uh the police chief in Toronto and the Pride president, I understand, uh, I, I, I guess agreed on in the sense that it would not help anybody for the funding to be held back. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the police ch- chief had to go along with whatever was uh, presented to him by the politicians. I think he's caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, I happen to think that, um, you know, that first of all, the conversations that are supposed to be happening between the Pride Executive Director, Olivia Nuama, and the police chief, who happens also to be black, the first black police chief uh, in Toronto, um, are not happening. So this has just been basically put on the back burner um, until after the parade. And I say, and there's a movement actually within the gay community, to uh, boycott the parade. So I say this isn't going to go away. No matter how much this executive director, Ms. Nuama, talks about conversations and will deal with it after the parade, the fact of the matter is that she's allowed, and the mayor, and a lot of council have allowed Black Lives Matter, a fringe group, to hijack the parade and dictate their terms. What is her position when you question her on that? Because we've tried to get her on the show and, of course, won't come on. Uh, does Pride favor Black Lives Matter, their position, more than the police? W- what is their position on this? And, and why didn't they, uh, why did they make any decision before coming to terms with any of this? Well, they were hijacked by Black Lives Matter uh, starting with last July when Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, held up the parade for... 30 minutes and so why doesn't Black Lives Matter just hold their own parade? I mean, like, what? How does? How is this allowed to happen? And because in the end, even from a brand perspective, the Pride Parade is hurting because of this. Well, you know what? It's like queers against the Israeli apartheid five years ago. Pride seems to succumb to these fringe groups, and it's happening all over again. And you have to ask them because I don't understand it because. We've had we've we've covered polls that say more than 50% of Torontonians believe the police should march. Uh, the gay community, all sides of the gay community, all sides of the spectrum, have contacted me, and I actually happen to be gay as well. I came out in the last 10 years. Um, they have come to me and said, "You're bang on on this. The police should not. This is supposed to be an inclusive parade, Scott. Mm-hmm. So you're telling the police they can't march. Yeah. Talk." lack of tolerance and inclusiveness. Does this reduce the credibility of pride? Very much so, I think. I think, you know, I've said that they've lost their way, and I don't care how many conversations they have. It's left a very conversation they will have. They're not going to have them now. It's left, left a very bitter taste in the, in the mouths of many, including those in the gay community in Toronto and around the province, I might add. I believe that St. John's was dealing with the same sort of issue. Uh, they resolved theirs. How come there and not here? 
Well, that's a good question. I think the mayor and the council have to grow a spine and say, look, you uh, better get this resolved before June 25th or we're going to you know, withhold your grant. And the other thing that I haven't mentioned is that the city provides more than 500000 in free policing. Mm-hmm. So Pride is quite happy to take that security, that free policing, and cops can be in uniform, but no, they can't march in their uniforms. Does that make sense to you at all? No, it doesn't. I, I don't understand what difference it makes if you're on one side of the invisible rope or the other. Um, what does What is Pride's or Black Lives Matter's position on all of this? What do they want? What are the demands? What are they looking to change other than booting the police out of the parade? Well, they say that there's a certain section of the community, the gay community, the queer community, as they call it, who feel marginalized. And when you question them who has been marginalized, they don't say. So as far as I'm concerned, it's just the people in Black Lives Matter who have stirred this all up. Um, I don't think anybody else feels marginalized. And that's not to say that there aren't issues with the cops. They're not perfect. No police forces. But this isn't the way to handle it. Uh, it sounds like the chief is up to working on anything that they need to in, in as far as improving relations. So why aren't we doing that? Well, that's a good question. He's uh, reached out to Pride and to Black Lives Matter and none of them have uh, wanted to meet. And, of course, Ms. Nuama, and exe- uh, the executive director of Pride, is using the excuse of the fact that they've got this parade to run, and I understand that. And they all came, it's a completely new cast of characters at Pride now, including Ms. Nuama. They all came on since March, uh, since February, I should say. Um, so th- they uh, have a lot of work to do to get the parade and, and the month-long festivities going. But I still think you could be having conversations. And you could say, look, I, you know, I think you should march, but we, we can talk about this later. We can talk about this and we can sort it out. Everybody is gung-ho to do that. Obviously, this has gone from a movement to almost a business when you think about the money involved, uh, you know, for a city like Toronto. Uh, how, is, how is the Pride Executive determined? Does that need to be examined here? Do we have uh, people who are qualified to do this? Well, it's the board, the board that should be targeted. Now, I, I, you know, rightly or wrongly, I found myself covering every single event related to Pride in the last year. I was at their town hall last August when they were discussing this, and I was at their annual general meeting. I was actually the only media person there in January when... uh, Are you there, Sue Ann? um, Basically uh, forced them to uh, vote to ban the police. So it's the board. It's the board that should be uh, tossed out. Uh, this seems to be great publicity for Black Lives Matter. What does this do for Pride in Toronto? I think it, it puts, paints a very v- bad picture of Pride in Toronto. I think, you know, they, <laughs> they had a whole review. Like I said, they had the Queers Against Israeli Apartheid um, group that hijacked the parade a couple years ago, and then they had a whole review. It was a community advisory panel that spent a year reviewing all of this. And they seem to have learned no lessons whatsoever from the last go-round, which um, affected their their brand, shall we say. Uh, so what's the solution here, Sue Ann? I mean, does the city have to take this over? I mean, because it's obviously in an interest to everybody to have this working and be successful. Where does the solution lie? 
I think the solution lies in withholding their funding and putting some strong terms on uh, this free policing that they provide. Uh, it seems that Black Lives Matter, uh, and I call Olivia Nuama their puppet, the executive director, um, ha are calling the shots. And meanwhile, the city's giving almost $1 million in grants, free policing, free cleanup, and they do have the power to put their foot down. If, if the mayor and council had the cojones to do so, they could do so. So is this all political correctness? Why doesn't Black Lives Matter just have their own parade? I wish they would. I absolutely wish they would. I mean, queers against Israeli apartheid in 2014 got it, and they actually disbanded in 2014 because they got it that they weren't, you know, they had been sidelined in the World Pride Parade in 2014. But Black Lives Matter seems to, is, is very intimidating. They seem to have intimidated the politicians, and they scream and they shout, and the political correctness uh, gene kicks in amongst our politicians, and they turn to jelly. So if the city next year, because I, well, I guess they still got to vote on this in May 28th, but if the city decides to withhold funding, can they do it this year or is that for next year? No, it would be this year. They, it's going to council on the 24th of May. And they could do it for this year. There's still time. Where would where, where would that leave the parade, Sue Ann? They have plenty of corporate sponsorships, Scott. Uh, they, you know, they will survive. They're, it's not a problem. A lot of people have said to me, make them for, uh, cough up for their own security. Now, I think that might be a bit difficult. I think the pr police have to... Uh, provide security because it's a parade of such a huge size. I mean, there's one yeah. million people. But I would put some strict terms on that security being provided. Now, what about corporate sponsorship here, Sue Ann? Because obviously it takes a lot of money to put something like this on, and, and corporate sponsors want to have their name associated with something like this. How does this tarnish that image? Where, are, where is corporate sponsorship on all of this discussion? Well, it's a very good question. Um, there's a young man named Bryn Hedricks who, he's a member of the gay community in Toronto, and he's written to every single corporate sponsor. And some of them have said that's a pride issue. They don't want to pull out. Uh, some have said they're going to review it. So uh, I think some of the corporate sponsorships are still very much up in the air. Who decides? Uh, Sorry, go I, ahead. I, I, want to, I want to just add another thing is that um, it looks like the firefighters and paramedics may be poised to pull out as well. Wow. In, in support of their um, brethren and sisters in the police. So right now it, it sounds like it's almost a kangaroo court sort of atmosphere that decides this executive. Who is involved in deciding who runs this establish, this organization? Well, I was at the annual general meeting when they voted on the board, the new members of the board, and I think the room was packed with, I mean, I think the people were planted on the board. I don't, the people who, they were, let's put it this way, the people who got on the board were all pro-Black Lives Matter people. Hmm. And, uh, you know, you got to credit the organization behind Black Lives Matter. It's been great. They are really good at organizing. So why are they so good and pride so bad? You know, well, and, and at the end of the day, there's a lot more money behind Pride than there is Black Lives Matter at this point. So how is this happening? Uh, they scream and shout and intimidate, and they get enough people on the fringe to support them. I mean, 
Scott, I was at the town hall last August. I was at the annual general meeting. It was bizarre. It was surreal. Any normal people, any normal person from outside who'd come into the room would have thought they'd landed on the planet Mars, where these white butch dykes took over the meeting, forced the facilitator was running the meeting to completely change the agenda and vote for BLM's demands. I mean, I, I still can't believe it happened. So, do you think this is more an anti-police movement than it is a Black Lives Matter movement? It is definitely anti-police because many, many a time I've questioned Black Lives Matter. They won't talk to me now because I, I criticize them. Um, I've questioned them why they, you know, are singularly and obsessively focused on the police and not on black-on-black crime, which is a very huge problem in Toronto and certainly in community housing. And they just, you know... Uh, cluck their tongues and say, uh, you don't understand. I don't understand what. You know, if black lives matter, all black lives matter, don't they? So, uh, I, I guess I'm having a hard time understanding how this went from a movement of inclusion and, and bringing uh, awareness of the gay community uh, to mainstream, and then all of a sudden we're talking about Black Lives Matter, and we're not talking about the gay community at all. Well, yeah, that's a very, very interesting comment. Like all of a sudden, exactly. the dis- it's all of a sudden the discussion, it's like we've changed uh, organizations here, like we've changed charities, we've changed interest here. It's well, all of a sudden gone from, you know, a gay movement to a Black Lives Matter movement. It is, and that's what everybody's saying. It's going to be Black Lives Matter pride. I mean, I'm gay, I'm Jewish, and I'm continually called a racist for daring to, to comment on all the things I've commented on on your show today. I'm called a racist. Uh, what, uh, where do you see this going? Where do you see, you, do you see the funding stopping by the 28th of May? Nope, I don't. I don't think they're going to have the, the guts to do it. I don't. Unless there continues to be pressure, and, and we're certainly putting the pressure on them. That being um, said, I, so, Sue Ann, I mean, the, the, obviously this parade generates a lot of money for the city, and it'll be more than yeah. just the gay community that's ticked off if this doesn't go through. So are we forgetting that side of the equation? The parade is going to happen one way or another. It's a question of, at this point, whether you want the emergency services to march in their uniform. That's the, the question. The parade will happen. Uh, rightly or wrongly, it, it might be, it might have a few less people this year, but it's going to happen. So I, I don't think it's going to implode. I think that it's, it's, there's going to be a lot of issues attached to it. And it will be clouded in controversy right till June 25th. Mark uh, my word. Uh, Black Lives Matter organization, the same in Canada as it is in the United States. How did it form up here? It actually formed with the help of some people in the States, which is interesting. But the interesting thing is, because I've been covering them as well, is that we don't have the same issues up here. We certainly have some problems with police shootings in Toronto and the uh, Special Investigations Unit not being transparent. And for that reason, I, you know, I supported them and respected them when they first started to call out the police on those issues. But then they became this really scary kind of terrorist movement. Like, they, you know, they intimidate, they show up, they disrupt. Uh, and this is their their way of dealing with things. So, 
Sue Ann Levy's Levy has been with us, investigative reporter at the Toronto Sun. The column today, cop extremely upset about pride bans. Sue Ann, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very much welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.